Good morning, Bethel Church. It's good to have a hootenanny every now and then, huh? Yeah. You, you, you guys do need to work on your clapping, though. I don't mean your applause. I mean your on-beat clapping. I don't know what was happening there, but it, it wasn't right. We've got work to do. Uh, today, uh, tonight is the last... Um, Awana for the year, it's the closing ceremonies, and not only is it clo- the closing ceremonies for Awana, but really it's closing ceremonies for our long-term Awana commander, Brent Curtis. Uh, Brent has been our Awana commander for 11 years, 11 years. Uh, so Brent, would you stand up? There he is. Brent, we are so grateful for your faithful service over the years, and don't let Brent fool you. He loves hugs, and if all of you would come and hug him after the service, just wrap your arms around him. The more, the better. If he's a little defensive, don't worry about it. Um, we're going to celebrate him tonight, too, with the kids, but uh, 11 years, is uh, that's a yeoman's job, and we appreciate your service to the Lord, to this church, and to our kids. Uh, you have done an amazing thing, not only with your faithfulness, but as I've, I've told you before, our kids know the Word of God better, and they know the God of the Word better because of your leadership and orchestrating all of the many faithful leaders in Awana. So thank you for that, brother. And if you would, just let's uh, bow in prayer, and we're going to ask the Lord to help us in our time in His Word this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful for the great salvation um, that we have that you have justified us freely by your grace, which is accessed through faith. And that we are being sanctified. That is, that we are growing up into the status that you have already given to us. And that we will one day be glorified. That we will be given new bodies. That we will uh, no longer have any sin or any sorrow or any sin nature, or any of the consequences uh, or repercussions of sin anywhere near us, but we will live in eternity with you, praising you with new bodies who give us the ability to clap on beat, I suspect. (laughs) We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. And that is a good and complete salvation. We know that it is all by your grace, by your mercy, for we don't deserve it. Uh, So thank you for that, Lord. I pray that you would guide our time in your word now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths that are here in the text. That we would hear them, not just with ears, but with our heart. That we would look to apply them to our lives. That we would be willing to change where your Holy Spirit provokes us to change. So guide us as we study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, Uh, we're continuing on in our series, the title of which is King Jesus, King Jesus. Matthew, the author of this gospel, is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he is trying to make it perfectly clear to them that this Jesus who has emerged on the scene is one who is qualified as the Messiah, the anointed one the long-awaited Savior who was to come, the King who will establish his kingdom. And so he lays out his evidence in a way that would be meaningful to his Jewish hearers. 
Uh, and so some of the features that we have found already in the book, I'll remind you, we see uh, that he shows the birth of Jesus, particularly his lineage and his pedigree, that Jesus' line goes all the way back to King David. So he has the right and the pedigree to be the king. We see prophecies that are fulfilled. In fact, Matthew is uh, very explicit about showing us time and time again the various prophecies that are fulfilled, not only in Jesus' birth, but in his life. We saw the forerunner, John the Baptist, one who was prophesied who would make ready and, and prepare the way for the Messiah. And John the Baptist was on the scene and he affirmed Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he announced. We see in Jesus' teaching, in fact, the whole book of Matthew is arranged around five discourses. And so Matthew is clear. He wants to show that Jesus is a teacher, that he is the rabbi of authority, that he not only knows the law, but is the law, in a sense. And so he shows the, the authority of his teaching. He also shows how his authority extends past the teaching, but also into this physical world as he performs miracles and heals diseases and <laughs> casts out demons. And then finally, today what we're going to look at is we're going to see the supremacy of this king, even over rituals of religion, including the Sabbath itself. And so Matthew is not just randomly put together. It's carefully constructed, making a case for Jesus, the king of kings, the one who was to come. Uh, now, a couple of years ago, uh, I want to tell you a couple stories to start things off here. I know you guys like stories. It's funny. I can be just preaching along, and then when I say, one time, you guys, all your heads pop up. <laughs> Makes me laugh. <clears throat> a couple years ago, a number of years ago, Amy and I had just been married. That's a number of years ago. And uh, we had received some duplicate wedding gifts. I think we actually received five or six crockpots for our wedding. Uh, apparently, people think pastors cook in crockpots. So... Um, we had some duplicates to return, and so I went back to Target with a duplicate gift. I don't remember exactly what it was, probably a crock pot. And I arrived in the customer service area, and they had one of those, you know, zigzagging ropes, right? And there was nobody there. There was somebody behind the counter, but no other customers. I was alone. So I, you know, kind of walked through the ropes and got up front, and I, and I have my return, and I began to engage uh, the agent there and said, hey, I have this return. We received some duplicates. And, and she quickly stopped me and said, I'm sorry, sir. We're doing the number system today. And I thought, the, I'm sorry, what? And she points over to the little red loop, you know, with the little ticket taker on it. We're doing the number system today, she says. And I'm thinking, number? I, I am the number. Like, I'm it. There's nobody else. And I'm kind of looking around thinking, Surely I'm on TV. There's a camera somewhere. This is, right? This is, so I'm kind of looking here to see if she's serious or just messing with me a little bit as people are prone to do. And uh, she's serious. So I kind of snicker a little bit and uh, I grab my ticket and I take a step back. And I'm standing here. My ticket's number 38. Thinking, all right, I'll wait for my number to be called. And no kidding, she says, 37? <laughs> and I'm like, well, boy, I'm next, you know. <laughs> Hope it doesn't take long. So I'm standing here, and then eventually she does say, 38. So I step forward and hand her my ticket, and I said, remember me? <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. All right, another story, just like it. A little bit different. Uh, more seasonally appropriate here. Uh, 
I used to, this is hard to say out loud, I used to have a motorcycle. This is sad for me. Yeah, I need some sympathy. <laughs> and so, um, but this particular day, I was not on the motorcycle. I had pulled up behind somebody who was. And I was coming down Belaine Road to Farmer's Loop to make the left. And so we were both in that left-hand turn lane. And if you've ever been on a motorcycle and you've pulled into that, that lane to make a left, you know it doesn't always see you. Uh, there's some times where the sensor just doesn't pick you up and you can do whatever you want. It's not going to get you. It'll stay red all day long. And so I've sat there before waiting for that thing to turn. I, I know this, but now I've pulled up behind somebody who's on a motorcycle and they're waiting for it to turn. And so I'm kind of laughing inside thinking, I wonder what this person's going to do. You know, are they just going to blow the light or, you know, how are they going to handle this? And I was shocked at what I saw. So this newer rider, it was obvious, <laughs> puts down the kickstand gets off the bike, walks over to the crosswalk, (laughs) hits the button to change the light, and comes back to their motorcycle, waits for it to turn, and then goes. And I thought, oh my goodness, I was not ready for that. So here, why do I tell you these two stories? What do they have in common, if you think about them? Each of these stories is an example of where the letter of the law was kept to the exclusion or even the distortion of the spirit of the law, right? I mean, the lines exist to make sure that we deal with customers in an expedient and fair manner, completely disregarded. The light exists to provide, to provide safety when turning into traffic, right? But if you get off your bike and walk across traffic and leave it stranded in the middle of the road, you've really kind of pressed past the whole safety thing, right? The letter of the law had been kept to the distortion of the spirit of the law or its purpose. And Jesus runs into situations like this too, not with motorcycles or with the return line, but with the Pharisees. In Matthew 12, 1, it says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath, on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, so the first thing we see here, Jesus and his disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath. And what we need to understand about this as modern readers is that the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping was one of the three most important features of Judaism, okay? The first being circumcision, Dietary, and then secondly, dietary laws and Sabbath keeping. These were critically important features and badges of a distinction in one's Jewish life. Uh, keeping the Sabbath was specifically uh, a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, a sign that you belonged to the Lord. If you want to flip in your Bibles to Exodus 31, I want to show this to you. Exodus 31, verse 13. And here we see the instructions of keeping the Sabbath. It says this, Exodus 31, 13, Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. 
This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done. But the seventh day is the day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So we can see this was an important symbol for the Israelites. And a way of thinking about it is kind of like a wedding ring, right? This is a symbol. This says that I'm married. It, it tells, reminds me that and it tells uh, the observing world that, that I, have, I am in a covenant relationship with my wife. Sabbath keeping was one of those ways that Israel reminded themselves and others that they belonged to the Lord. They were in a covenant relationship with him. It was a day set aside for rest and for worship. A day that showed ultimately that they trusted in him for their welfare, and that in the resting on him, it shows even kind of a a futuristic hope that we trust in the Lord for our future rest, as Hebrews talks about, where we long for the eternal rest that God will give to those who love him. And so because it was such an important mark of distinction for Israel, the Sabbath was kept absolutely vigilantly. So you can imagine then that in a world that's trying to keep this, uh, to protect this symbol, that there's all kinds of questions emerge around the issue of, well, what constitutes work? How, how do we keep the Sabbath? And at what point do we, do we overtake it? And this was going to be Israel's uh, question here. And so all kinds of additional human rules and restrictions were created around this day. Uh, and there were actually 39 activities that were specifically forbidden. I'll just give you a couple of examples. One might be uh, you couldn't light a fire. That was too much work. Uh, another would be that you couldn't tie a knot. Uh, it would be, you can imagine if you were a fisherman and, and you would need to from time to time to mend your nets. And that would, that's why that one was specifically restricted because it might be uh, an occasion where somebody is mending their net. So you couldn't tie a knot, couldn't light a fire. And there was also a Sabbath day's journey. You couldn't travel beyond a certain point. And I think it was right about a mile. Um, and so th- those things just constituted too much work. And so those were sort of the man-made rules to try to help people with this question of how do they keep the Sabbath. But the end result of it was this. What God had given as a gift What he had meant as a blessing instead had become a burden. Because this day of rest and this day of worship had been surrounded by man's rigid and constrained rules beyond what God was trying to accomplish. Teachers, you experience this all the time when you're trying to take a day off at work, right? And you have to, first of all, you've got to get a sub and that takes time. And then you've got to develop lesson plans, and that really takes time. So you've got to come in early to develop your lesson plans, sometimes stay late to do them, right? 
And then you have to not only do lesson plans, but whomever your sub is going to be, you've got to give them specific instructions about your classroom. You've got to tell them which kid's a flight risk, yeah, and which kid has a legitimate reason to leave or to be pulled out of the classroom. And then when you get back from your rest, you're going to have to untangle whatever came up while you were gone. And so in, in, in the end result is taking a day off oftentimes is as much or more work than having just simply shown up for work, right? So I will tell you, hang in there. There's only a couple more weeks, right? And then summer's coming. But this was the same kind of thing that was happening for Israel. God had given a blessing. Rest. A day set aside to be refreshed, to reflect on the Lord, to worship the Lord, to enjoy it. But in trying to define it, they had burdened it. And instead of a blessing, it was a weight. And this kind of scenario is what prompted some of the very pithy teachings of Jesus that you're familiar with, such as, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or in Mark, Mark chapter 2, where it's the same incident in Mark's gospel, the, the words of Jesus are preserved that say this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But everything had been inverted and turned around such that mankind was even suffering under the burden of just simply trying to keep a day of rest and worship. So in the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus and the disciples were violating this very sacred day. And here's how they were violating it. I want to show it to you so you can see the absurdity. By picking the grain, just hand-picking the grain, in the Pharisees' minds, they're guilty of harvesting. By rolling it together in their hands to separate the grain from the chaff, they're guilty of threshing. And by simply blowing the chaff away, they've broken the Sabbath by winnowing. So you can see the absurdity of what the Pharisees are projecting upon Jesus and the disciples here. And in fact, what we find is that the disciples had only broken man's traditions or man's rules, but not God's law. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 24, you don't have to turn there, uh, it says this, If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. And so those who were in the agricultural world of the day were actually supposed to leave the perimeter of their crops so that those who were in need, those who were hungry or those who were poor could simply and easily grab them as they had need. And this is what Jesus and the disciples are doing. And they, I mean, the law specifically gives them the permission to do this. The Pharisees, of course, are saying that now that you've done it on the Sabbath, you've broken the law. And it is absolutely absurd. But what, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't really take the bait and argue this point primarily about what is legal and what is not legal. But he pushes the discussion more to the condition of their heart. And he makes that the central issue. In other words, this is our second point this morning here. Jesus doesn't refute the theological error. He refutes the error of their heart. But again, the, the problem was that the, the Pharisees, though they were well-intentioned, they had grown to love the law itself and the minutiae of the law rather than the purpose or the intent of the law. 
The purpose and the intent of the law was to help create and cultivate in God's people a knowledge of him, a love for him, and a love for one another. God was teaching them who he was and who they were and how they ought to live. And instead, they had completely missed the purpose and were just celebrating the law itself. And so Jesus exposes the error of their heart really in three different directions. The first is he exposes their heart, uh, their wrong-heartedness towards the law itself. And so he kind of acts like a lawyer here at this particular point. If I can say that of Jesus, I I might get in trouble for that one. I don't know. Um, But basically, he starts pulling out case law. He pulls out precedents. And so he goes and says, let's think about David and the showbread. In the temple, uh, there would be 12 loaves of bread, one celebrating or, or one representing each of the 12 tribes, and only the priests were to eat that bread. Yet when David and his men show up to the temple famished and vulnerable, the bread was taken and given to them. And Jesus says, they didn't break the law for that. Or consider <clears throat> the priests in the temple. It's the, day of, it's the day of Sabbath. It's a day of rest, right? But the priests are working, right? Let me tell you. Yes, they are. They're working. I feel it. Uh, and the point is that, that, uh, that Jesus is showing here that there are occasions under which the letter of the law really is set aside or not held against in order for the spirit of the law to be uh, contained. The law of God as we find in the Old Testament, was a lot like, I think this is a good illustration, it was a lot like training wheels, training wheels for a bike. The point is you put training wheels on a bike so that a young rider will learn what it means to sit upright, to pedal, to have speed, to turn, to to have balance. But all of it is to an end. It's to an end that one might eventually ride freely without those constraints. And similarly, the law is given to cultivate within people, again, a love for God, a knowledge of themselves and what they need of the Lord and how to behave and how to love others. The point was not that we would continue to have these training wheels holding us down, but that in the end, we would learn to live freely the way God wants us to. And that point had absolutely been missed uh, by the people here. Uh, And unfortunately, mankind, I think it's human nature, we really gravitate towards religion, towards rules, Rule keeping. If you take a handful, just take three or four or five boys, young boys under the age of 10 or 12, and you put them in a room, they will invariably build a fort. And the fort will very quickly have rules. No girls allowed. This is the secret handshake. And these are the feats of strength that we must perform in order to belong, right? This is human nature, and children do this kind of thing all the time. No one teaches them that this is how it ought to be. It's just kind of in us, and we tend to drift towards these things. C.S. Lewis made a great illustration once about how um, the act of pointing, how that's really lost on dogs. So if there is, let's say, a morsel of food on the ground, and obviously C.S. Lewis didn't know our Labrador Huckleberry because there's no morsel of food on the ground in our house because he finds it all, which is good. But if you were to point at the ground to a morsel of food, the dog doesn't understand the significance of your pointing. It doesn't follow the direction of your finger. It comes over and sniffs the end of your finger. And this is what the Pharisees have done with the law. The law was to point to something. 
a way of living, a way of being, a way of knowing God, loving God, and ultimately pointing to Christ. But they had missed the significance of its pointing, of, of its directing, and instead they're sniffing the end of the finger, so to speak. And this is what Jesus begins to take issue with. So he confronts their wrong-heartedness towards the law. He also confronts their wrong-heartedness towards others. One of the things that is stunningly clear and a bit shocking at times is in the scriptures how important mankind really is to the Lord. That he knows us and that he really, truly loves us. That we are not just robots or incidental creatures but of his great love for us and the love he wants us to have for one another. And Jesus draws this out here by quoting from the prophet Hosea. You see this at the end of the passage that we just looked at in verse 7. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, so to make his point, what Jesus is doing is he's quoting from the prophet Hosea. If you want to turn there, I'm going to look at it. It's Hosea chapter 6. If you're in Matthew, just go back to the left a few pages. If you hit Daniel, you went too far. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. And what's happening here in this Old Testament passage in Hosea is it's basically written to both Israel and to Judah, northern and southern kingdom. Both are rebelling against the Lord. But, and, and Hosea is primarily talking to the northern kingdom. But he, he basically is confronting them about their idolatry and about their sin. Listen to these passages. First of all, we start with sort of a vocalization from Israel. And then we see God's reply. Hosea 6.1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will receive us back. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And now we see the Lord's reply. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist like the early dew that disappears. That's not a flowery compliment. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, the word here, mercy, we need to start with this. The Hebrew word for this is hesed. You've got to spit a little bit to say it right. Hesed. And it's translated elsewhere in the scriptures as love, loyal love, steadfast love. So mercy is actually an extension of the root of it, which is this loyal and steadfast love. And so what Jesus, or rather what Hosea, first of all, is doing is he's saying, you guys are presuming upon my grace. You're going out there wantonly sinning again and again. You're practicing idolatry. You're worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. You're rebelling against me regularly. And then you come back with these perfunctory sacrifices. I'm done with the charade. I'm really done with empty rituals. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. I want your loyal, steadfast love. And that's the, con the confronting message 
that through Hosea, God is bringing to his people just prior to his judgment. I want your heart, your whole heart. I don't want you habitually sinning and then just coming back with empty rituals. I want your loyal, steadfast love. And so it's this incident, this historical moment that Jesus is pulling back on and he's pulling forward to this situation with the Pharisees where they're saying, oh, you guys have broken the law. Can you imagine how incredulous Jesus was to this? You know, like I am the law. I wrote the law. I'm the author of it. I'm the only one that's ever kept it. I fulfill it. It points to me and you're going to tell me about the law. It's absurd. But he points back to this moment in history saying, you guys are just keeping the outward ritual alive. But the heart in the center of it is substantively missing. I want your heart. So Jesus shows their wrongheartedness towards the law. He shows their wrongheartedness towards others. They're just going through these mechanical situations here. And then finally he shows their wrongheartedness towards himself. And so Jesus makes himself really the central feature here. This is interesting. The Pharisees, a lot of what's going on to the surface here is they're threatened by Jesus. See, he's teaching with authority. And he's not following their man-made rules. And he has the popularity. He has the following. People are going out to him. And so they're really trying to pin him down on an unpopular uh, position in relationship to the law so that they can kind of stand up over him. And he takes this opportunity to make a statement about himself, not just to kind of get muddled up in the application of the law. He's quoted, or he's, he's already cited the example of David and of the priests. But now he says something that I think should be absolutely shocking to the Pharisees and should get our attention as well. Verse six, he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And look at his closing words. For the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so in doing this, he's making himself out to be superior to David, superior to the priests, superior to the temple, superior even than the authority and an authority over the Sabbath itself. So he's not looking, you can imagine this, this really soothed their ruffled feathers, right? Oh, now we get it, Jesus. The Pharisees loved to debate things. And they just wanted his opinion so they could make him unpopular in some way. And Jesus lets them know in no uncertain terms, I'm not a part of your fraternity. I'm not playing by your rules. I'm not just giving you a position that is one of among many. I'm an authority over the law. I'm the author of it. I'm the only one who keeps it perfectly. I fulfill it, not just in that I keep it, but that ultimately it points to me. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew's theme throughout the gospel is to highlight Jesus as King Jesus. And this is the moment where Jesus asserts it himself. And then there's one other incident here. We're going to go through this one quickly, but this is verse 9. It says this, Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges uh, against Jesus. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Now I get that Jesus had some uncomfortable teachings, and he made some uncomfortable statements. But you know what? When a man has a healthy hand and a shriveled hand, and another person comes along and heals it right in front of you, you think they'd go, hey, maybe this guy's got something to say, you know? Let's, let's listen to him just a little bit. But the next verse says, But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus, which I'm pretty sure is against the law, right? <laughs> They're after the technicalities. They're doing ropes and pushing buttons at stoplights kind of thing. At the same time, they're plotting to kill Jesus. Keepers of the law is how they're portraying themselves. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill, and he warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. There's a lot going on here, but obviously there's this one incident where Jesus just shows them the absurdity of their thinking. Look how illogical it is. You'll rescue a sheep, but not help a person. You've really got this backwards. But again, he makes the He makes the whole occasion really about himself here, and that brings us to our third point. The supremacy of Christ becomes a dividing issue between he and the Pharisees, where they were once simply opposed to him on maybe interpretations of the law and whatnot, and a little bit antagonistic. Now it's all out warfare. Now he's declaring things about himself like, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And so now the conflict is on. But look how hard-hearted the Pharisees really are. Even having heard the teachings, having seen all of the miracles and the healing right in front of them, having been confronted with the absurdity of their own thinking such that they were treating animals better than people, they still go on to plot for his death, which is absolutely against the law. That's how hard-hearted they are. And that reveals to me this, I think, other sort of human nature truth. The Pharisees would rather cling to their legalism than to submit to Christ. And my friends, I think this is alive and well today. Uh, Legalism is alive and well today. We just maybe don't think about it under those terms. But if you were to go out in the streets and you were to ask most people, do you think you are in right standing with God? Do you think that someday God would permit you to come to heaven? Most people will tell you between 70 and 90%, depending on the study, most people will tell you, yes, I do. And if you were to follow that question up with another and ask them, on what basis should God let you into heaven? Do you know what invariably the answer is, even from many professing Christians? I've done more good things than bad. My friends, that's legalism. At the root of it, which is, I earned my way. You see, anybody under that particular thinking or worldview, the image of their faith is essentially the scales. One has just got to outweigh the other. But the image of the Christian faith is the cross, where sin is punished and killed and destroyed by Christ alone who can do so. 
So legalism is absolutely alive and well, most of the world lives under it without knowing it. And unfortunately, many Christians do also. Having come into the faith by professing, by repenting of sin and professing faith in Christ, many people wander away from that and go on to live a works-based, performance-driven spirituality, thinking that they are only secure in the family of God through performance. Reality is that all of us need to submit to Christ and his atoning work on the cross for us, not our own work. Our own is completely insufficient. And I love the words of C.H. Spurgeon on this point. He says, we will allow God to be anywhere but on his throne. Human nature says, I got this. Western human nature says, I got this. Alaskans really say, I got this. And God says, no, you need me. You need me. And so my final point here is this. I think there are a lot of sneaky forms of legalism that persist today. Probably most of you here in the room would not say, if I were to ask you the question, are you trying to earn your way into good standing with the Lord by your works? I I, I suspect that most of you would say, no, no, I would never do such a thing. I know that I have to trust in Christ and his death on the cross for me. I know that. But I think legalism has some sneaky uh, underbellies too, if I could say this. While we would probably say, no, I'm not trying to earn my way, one of the ways that I think we show that we sort of still live under the trappings of legalism is when we continue to hold out guilt and self-condemnation over mistakes we've made in the past. If you're walking around with a guilty conscience all of the time, with insecurity, thinking that you're standing with the Lord is always in jeopardy, if you're beating yourself up over things of the past, then you're living in a realm of a kind of legalism. Christ came to cover all of your sins, past, present, and future. If you're living in self-condemnation, you're continuing to exercise a form of legalism. I think another form of legalism that we sometimes practice is a pride in what we don't do. So we may not think that we earn our way with the Lord, but on the other hand, we might, you know the old expression, I I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, right? I think sometimes the mentality of some Christians can be, oh no, I don't do those things that other people do, so I'm secure. Friends, that's a form of legalism. It's another form of legalism. And I think maybe one of the sneakiest forms uh, that's out there today, you may not even be aware of, is happening. You may allow God's grace and his mercy as poured out on the cross to wash over you. You may live in that and rejoice in that and do that well. You may not exercise self-condemnation. You may not try to earn your way. You may know that you rest securely in God's family based upon his grace and you you just swim in his grace. But you may not extend it to other people. When other people trip up and they make mistakes and they go backwards and they fall down, then what you extend is judgment and condemnation instead of extending the grace of God to them as well should they lay hold of it. It's another form of sneaky legalism. The question that I want to close with is this, how do we combat legalism? How do we combat legalism? 
several years ago before my motorcycle riding days, I took a class, a training class, because um, I thought, if I'm going to ride this thing, I better learn how to do this right. And so uh, Pastor Keith and I took a class together, which was a hoot. And um, one, of the, one of the lessons uh, that I remember, one of many, uh, was particularly about how to avoid a pothole. And do we have any motorcycle riders out here? Can I see your hands? Raise them proudly. Come on. What's with this half-hearted? We're not, there's no legalism here, right? One of the things that we were taught was that when you're riding down the road and you see a pothole, and as a rider you're thinking, I've got to avoid the pothole, what you learn as a rider is don't look at the pothole. Because if you look at the pothole, if your eyes see it, your head's going to see it, your body's going to align to it, your bike is going to align to it, and you're going to hit the pothole. So don't look at the pothole, was the, was the counsel. Instead, what you need to do is you need to see the path that you want to follow that goes around the pothole. You've got to put your eyes over here, and your head over here, and your body over here, and your bike will follow. But if you look at that pothole, your bike's going right into it. And if you have been riding for any length of time, you know that's true. It's amazingly true. And the same is true with legalism. See, we can look at all of this and we can say, okay, don't earn your way with the Lord. Don't earn your way with the Lord. Don't practice self-condemnation. And get, you, know, you, you can kind of look at all of the externals of these things and in the end, you end up doing the exact thing you don't want to do. The way to get around is you got to see the path around is and you have to, here it is, you have to believe the gospel. You have to believe what the gospel really says, that a righteousness is given through faith in Christ. And so we don't look at the obstacle in front of us. We look at the truth and the path around it. And the path that God has made available is that there is a way through Jesus where all sin is paid for at the cross. We're justified freely by his grace. His righteousness transferred into our lives. We stand before him secure because of Jesus. Not because of anything we do or fail to do. The antidote to legalism is the gospel, which is the last line of what Jesus is saying when he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And my friends, that is your only hope for secure standing with the Lord, is that you have put your hope in his name. You stand secure in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, when we look at the scriptures and we see the Pharisees and their acts of legalism, they're absurd and they're laughable and we scoff at them. And yet, really, if we spend any time at all examining our own lives, we would see that we practice forms of legalism as well. God, forgive us when we, in our pride and hubris, seem to think that we could do something that only you could do. I pray that you would help me my friends and the believers here this morning, God, that we would not only believe the gospel at the moment of coming into your family, but that we would continue to believe it and proclaim it to ourselves. We stand secure in the family of God because of grace, because we have been justified by his grace freely given through faith. Help us not try to supplant or do what only you can do but to trust in the good news gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.